This summer, we're in a series of listening to music, to psalms that were prayers that became songs. Now, one could argue that the entirety of the psalms were sung in many places they were, but these psalms in particular that we're looking at are called the songs of ascent, as you've heard me say before, where we're, we're listening to the, the songs that Israel would sing on their way to Jerusalem for one of the annual feasts that would be held each year. And as these are very different kinds of texts from reading the Gospels or reading one of the letters or reading the historical narrative or reading you know, the Proverbs, after a while, when you start trying to preach songs, I mean, try to, imagine trying to preach whatever your favorite song is. <laughs> um, that'd be fun, right? Or a challenge. It's been a challenge. But it's got me to thinking, why do we sing at all? Why do humans sing? Uh, you know, birds sing. Whales, you could say that's singing, right? Um, these, these so-called cicadas that have, you know, been unearthed. They've been, they've been away on hiatus for 17 years, and now they're out singing, sort of like, sort of like Donny Osmond this week, right? Um, did you catch that? Um, don't press the analogy too far. Everybody sings for all sorts of reasons. Why do we sing, though? What, that's what that led me to think about that. Why do we sing? I, there's at least two reasons. One is, I think, I think sometimes we want to remember something. We want to recover something. Um, and therefore, you find many people starting to sing songs that they sang from their childhood. I, I will always, <laughs> this is funny, I will always associate Quiet Riot with sixth grade because we danced to Quiet Riot in the, the sixth grade dance in a little sunken amphitheater there, right? But we, we, we sing to recover something, to, to relive something, to be transported to an earlier day. So there's that, there's that other song from my childhood from, from um, Billy Joel, the piano man, where he says, uh, hey, Son, can you play me a memory? Not really sure how it goes, but it's sad and it's sweet and I knew it complete when I wore a young man's clothes. Right? We're out to, we're out to, we go there. We, we want something. We want to recover something from it. That's, that's one reason why we sing. I think another, though, is at times we sing to find our courage again. That there's something about singing, especially when you sing with others, that kind of wells up in you. And, and we all feel like we're in lames. Do you hear the people sing, singing the songs of angry men? Right? And we all want to lift up our red flags. And it's great. We feel that. And honestly, the last several years, the song that has stuck with me the most is a cover by Drew Holcomb of a Tom Petty song. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down, right? Something about the song, something about the music, it just, it grabs you and you like, I'm here, I will, I will stand, I will live to stand another day. We, we do that, that's why we sing, I think. We want to recover something, we want to find courage, and, and the psalm that we're about to hear is doing both things. <clears throat> and therefore, the psalm that we're about to hear, which always, as all of these songs of a sense go, they go really fast. You don't blink, you miss them. <clears throat> the song is more than a song. And it's even more than a prayer. It's an act of faith. And as an act of faith, it's also a habit of faith. And therefore, uh, I hope that you will not just hear this as ancient words that were set to some melody that we cannot retrieve now. I hope that you would hear this as, this is what people of faith do and therefore, it is ancient, but it could not be more relevant 
and particularly for our day. So let's find out how what this psalm has for us is more than content, but a template for how to believe. We're in Psalm 126. I wonder if you could stand just briefly to hear the psalm. Psalm 126. Our central text for today is found in Psalm 126, verse 1 through 6, a song of ascent. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we are like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow and tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Way to go, Willow. Thanks. The psalm is two things. And the first thing it is, is an act of remembrance. It is inviting Israel to consider an earlier day, but no ordinary earlier day. And though it's always hard to be as precise as we might prefer to be about what specific moment inspires the psalm, it, it makes a lot of sense to imagine that this psalm is remembering when Israel was said, you can go home now. You're no longer in exile. You can go home now. And so they got to journey. So last fall, if you can remember back that far, we listened to the prophet Daniel when Israel and Judah were in exile in Babylon. And as I said at the announcement at the top of the service in September, we're going to listen to Haggai when Israel's back in the land. Psalm 126 kind of takes place in between two prophets, in between Daniel and Haggai. And here, what we first are out to remember is what happened when there was a decree that Israel could go home again. And whatever the experience was, it was ecstasy. It was ecstasy. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It was a, can this be happening to us? Somebody pinch me. If I'm in a dream, don't wake me up. To be said that you could go home after however many decades of being constrained by some foreign power. It was astonishing. And I, I have no concept of that. I have no experience to speak of that. Um, I, I can point you to something that maybe speaks of, a, of, a, of ecstasy and a thrill that represents a reversal of fortunes that maybe some of you remember or have heard of. But when I was nine, the, the hockey team that was once part of the Soviet Union had won the last four Olympic gold medals. And duh, they used professionals back when only the Russians did and the Americans were using amateurs. And that year, the, uh, the United States hockey team in Lake Placid, New York were a bunch of amateurs. They were the youngest hockey team. And so everybody thought it was weird that they made it to the medal round. And then they thought it was laughable that they were matched against the Soviet Union team. They thought, wow, this will be a clinic in how to play hockey that the Soviets will put on at no extra charge. 
And if you know that story, then you know it. 30 seconds to go, America, U.S. is up four to three, and then with five seconds to go, Al Michaels, the announcer, has the presence of mind to say, do you believe in miracles? And they win. And they go on to win the gold medal against Sweden. And that year was a reversal of fortunes for something as silly and as the U.S. Olympic hockey team. But we don't forget, in fact, somebody, whoever rates these things, it's allegedly the most memorable moment in sports of the 20th century. Now that's a game. And there's an ecstasy that accompanies it, that kind of reversal of fortune. I, I suppose the closest thing to imagining <clears throat> what it was like for Israel is to try to imagine the experience of somebody that, that was in the Underground Railroad during the Civil War. Of somebody that was able to escape, and where they left, they were in chains. And, and when they came out from, from the railroad, they were free people again. They only knew what it meant to be encumbered. They only knew what it meant to be enslaved. And yet, when they, when they step out to the end of the railroad, they're, they're free people. And in that, there's just a kind of experience that I suppose none of us know. And that's what Israel's feeling. Constrained for a long time. And now they're headed home. And for them to think as they did, for them to experience what they did, the psalmist is out to say, do you remember that? Do you remember that? Because whatever that experience was, apparently it had a certain international buzz to it. Because in verse 3 you hear it say, our mouth was filled with laughter, and then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. This people that had been splintered by their own factionalism, that had been conquered by more than one nation over the course of centuries, and has, were liable to being absorbed by an entirely different culture such that no one would have ever heard of Israel a hundred years from then. These are the ones that are walking home, and people who had been kind of watching the papers and being onlookers going, wait a minute, I thought they were dead. These folks who, who left how many people in, in graves back in Babylon were now walking home to a place that some only knew by the stories that had been passed down? And now they're going. And the psalmist is out to remind them of this. The Lord is looking after them. He is, to borrow many lines from many of these psalms we've already preached through, he is their help. And so that memory has become a song, a song that they're out to sing, to recover something, to recover something that they are liable to lose, to recover a memory. And what that is, therefore, here in the first half of the psalm is not just a, a historical account, it's an act of faith. It's a habit of faith. Is it your habit? Is it my habit? Not, not to remember the, the exile. I, don't, I wasn't there. I don't know. But do, do, you ever, do you ever think about some of the things that really used to hold you hostage in a profound way but which don't as much anymore? Do you ever, do you ever consider about the, the hang-ups, you call them idolatries, the things that you used to put so much trust in and that you had to sort of be, you know, 
um, disabused of the whole mirage that those things were and, and, and now you see them for what they are and now you've discovered that there is something perhaps more worthy of your attention that is an anchor of your soul. Do you ever, do you ever think about how you've been delivered from some of those things? I, I know you still struggle. I know I still struggle. But do you ever consider how the struggle perhaps is a little bit different because of, because of what he has shown you? For those of you that have been part of this body for a very long time, do you ever think about the joys that you have had among this people? Do you ever recount any of that? And I don't mean simply to be nostalgic. The psalmist is not being nostalgic here. He, they are, he, he is not recounting this moment that they might revel in that memory like a bunch of men of a certain age who sit around a campfire smoking cigars, chewing the fat, saying, you remember? It's not, that's not what this is doing. There's a purpose to this remembrance. And that's what the whole second half of the text is about. Yes, the habit of faith that you and I almost take up is, is to remember, to put it in our brains, because if we don't, the fog will descend and all of it will start to seem like it is murky and I will not step any forward with any kind of confidence. We remember for a purpose. And that purpose, I think, is what we see in verse 3. In verse 1, he's asking them to remember, when the Lord restored our fortunes. But in verse 3, it's a prayer. And that prayer in verse 4 is, sorry, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Like streams in the Negev. The Negev was this very arid, often desert-like place that you would think would never be cultivated. And then rains would come and these pools would form. They call them wadis. And once again, the, the ground was nourished again and replenished and being able to support life and to provide goodness for all that lived in that proximity to that. They're in this moment asking the Lord to restore them. He's saying, do it again, will you? I know what you've done before. Would, would you do it again, please? I know you can. Will you? And let's be really clear about what they're asking for when they say restore our fortunes. This is not about, <clears throat> you know, a better security gate, a higher wall. You know, there's part of that. Or a house. You know, those things come along with it. He's saying restore our inner being Restore our sense of what it meant to believe that we belong to you. Don't, don't restore to us the sense that we had all this power or influence. Restore to us the sense that the only proper way to live in this world is humbly. Don't, don't restore to us the, uh, the kind of uh, self-contained, autonomous belief that we really don't need you. Actually, restore to us the sense that we desperately do. Don't don't restore to us that we belong to ourselves. Restore to us the belief that we belong to you. That's our fortunes. All the other things stuff can, is nice and it helps, but if we don't have these other things, then the other stuff will be a substitute that is no substitute. You've done it before. Would you do it again? So, for him to ask in that way and, and to put it in the psalm, what does that suggest? That, that he is not writing from a moment of exultation and happy-go-lucky. He's writing from a great place of need. 
of desperation even if he's having to say, would you do it again? I grew up in Houston, Texas, and, and, and you know that maybe four years ago there was a once-in-700-year storm there. And, and we know about floods around here, but the floods there were, were catastrophic. And in, and in how many homes was there a, a, a family portrait maybe taken from within the size of the house, just the family portrait that, that then at that moment was sort of floating in about eight inches of water in their living room. And, and can you imagine being a family in that situation in which you, you, you're, you're looking at that family portrait that was such a, of such a wonderful time and, and now you here are wondering if the mold will ever be gone. And you wonder if this home will ever be a home again. I think the psalmist is writing from that kind of sensibility. Excited and thrilled to be home, but now here, back in Israel, after it's lied fallow and being overrun by any number of forces and sources, and, and now you're trying to pick up from, from the very beginning, and you're wondering to yourself, will this ever be home again? Will this ever be a place in which we, we are not muted in our worship, when we are not preoccupied with things that are beyond ourselves? The the call of the psalmist to recover that memory of an earlier day was not simply to recover the memory. It was to recover the strength to hope again. Uh, I've sent you this little ditty from David Wilcox. Where I don't remember which song it's from. He goes, uh, too tired to sleep, too angry to pray. Maybe Israel is that moment. Home Glad to be there, but whew, I don't know if I got it in me even to ask the Lord to do anything to be of help. And maybe you feel that sometimes. Maybe I do. In 1992, there was a, a song by uh, R.E.M. called Everybody Hurts. It's a great song. I listened to this afternoon. The, the video that was made of it, uh, it takes place in like a big traffic jam. Hundreds of cars that are just stuck and the camera takes you through a tour of several of the occupants of several of those vehicles. And while you hear R.E.M. singing the song, there are actually subtitles in every frame. And those subtitles represent what the people in those cars are thinking in the moment. The things that they're struggling with. The things that they're wishing that were different. The, 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 the fears that they have. The, the real desperate thoughts that are, that are preoccupying their word. And about halfway through the song in the video, you see this guy standing up on a on an overpass, and, and pieces of paper are falling, they're falling down from the overpass on the people that are waiting for the traffic jam to end, and, and it cuts away, and, and then it cuts back, and then in time you realize that those are pages, and that guy is ripping pages from a book, and, and he's sort of letting them shower down upon these people, and, and it turns out that one of the pages that he's ripping, he's ripping them from a Bible, and as you see the the page float down, the subtitle that comes up on the screen watching this man up there is from verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And it's as if, as if R.E.M. is trying to say, there is, there is a, a presence, there is a voice that is trying to drop upon you, shower upon you a little voice of hope in the midst of your sorrows, in the midst of what you think will never end. To those who first heard this psalm, who were planters, 
who were back in a land that they had not been in for a long time. They had one store of seed, and that's it. And so you can imagine why the the psalmist would use this really evocative language of you to go out and sow in tears. Because if, if you're coming to plant and it's this land that you're going to live or die by, but you only got one store of seed, you know what you can't do. You can't hold on to it because that seed is not going to do anything for you unless it gets in the ground. But once you put it in that ground, if that land does not deliver, then you are stuck because you don't have a storehouse to go out and replace another crop with. This is it, man. You can't keep it. But man, you also can't waste it. It's got to go in the ground. It's got to deliver. That's sowing in tears. That's knowing that you can't hold on to what you got. But man, what if happens if I try and nothing delivers, nothing produces? That's it. And in the midst of that, you can understand why some of them might have felt like, what's the point? Life is entropy. It's just dissipating and dissolving into more disorder. So why even bother? You ever felt that? They may have. It's my way, it might be why they sowed in tears. And it's why the psalmist is reminding them of that day when God was faithful before. So that they might have the courage to ask and to act. Because sometimes you need someone to come around and give you a nudge. And that though they have reasons for being melancholic, they have reasons to be apprehensive about whether this world will ever be the world to it again. The psalmist has written this psalm to say unto them, there will be a time in which you will give thanks again. And that is why you may sow in your tears. That is why you may go out weeping. There will be a day for which you will give thanks. Friends, we all read similar things. And it's possible that you've been reading as I have been reading, about how the church on this other side of this season is now a different church. Not just GMR, churches across the world. As I said in the announcement, it's a rare organization that comes out of this moment unchanged. And a lot of things have been true of this church, of a church in general. It's been winnowed, it's been sorted into more homogenous groups, It's been denuded of things that once gave it livelihood for all sorts of reasons. And that's sobering. But as your pastor, I'm here to remind you of something that G.K. Chesterton said about 150 years ago. Christianity has died many times and risen again for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. You can meditate on that all day if you want to. We know the way out of the grave. We know where it comes from. And so, it's a call to remember. I know that many of you have been here for a very long time, and that's why I've asked you now here a second time, to remember the days of great joy, of relief, of encouragement, of rescue that you have found from this people on the basis of the gospel that was preached and has been preached and of the hope of glory that we're, both, we're all supposed to incline ourselves to. I want you to remember those days that you might find the strength to ask and to act again. But for those of us that don't have as long of a track record as some of you, myself included, what this sermon and I think this text is calling us to is of an even deeper and more foundational kind of remembrance. 
to remember something that's even more pivotal to our understanding than any previous experience that we have. And that comes from something that Paul tells the church at Corinth in his second letter to them, when in the context of a sort of a longer conversation about asking that church to step up and to provide for the nurturing of other more fledgling churches in more difficult situations, he says this in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He's not trying to manipulate them. He's not trying to coerce them. He'll say in this chapter, God loves a cheerful giver. But he invokes this memory to be its motivation. And what is the truth of that one verse? This whole psalm talks about plenty and want, need and contentment. Jesus had all the privileges and riches of divinity, and he was entitled to them, but he set them aside for a season. He gave them up. He did not count equality with God a thing to be hoarded or grasped, it says in Philippians 2. He set it all aside. Why? To make you and me rich. Not materially. Something more substantive than material richness. He came to enrich us with himself. He came to give us a forgiveness that we could not merit. He came to give us a belovedness that we could not earn. He came to give us a heart we could not contrive or manufacture. He came to give us an inheritance that cannot be taken. And he did all of that at his cost. And this is what we call good news. Because it is good news. And in the way in which he impoverished himself to make us rich, that is the one and perhaps best, if not only thing, that must motivate us in the season ahead. Friends, I, ordinarily you put applications at the <clears throat> end of a sermon. But to be honest, the application of this sermon you've already heard because it was at the top of the service. Why are we going to pray? Restore our fortunes, O Lord. We're going to ask. We're going to ask and we're going to act because we believe that he can because we need to recover the belief. I need to recover the belief that I'm dependent and I'm directed by him in that. We remember our joy both that which we have experienced and that which is true for anyone, no matter their experience, so that we might learn how to ask and to act for new stories. That we might learn how to act, ask and to act for new guidance on what it means to be a faithful body. So we're going to try to take him at his word and do what he says and see what awaits. Let's pray. Sir, we have put you on the spot. And we are asking you to deliver, not to prove anything to us, but to lift us and hold us and remind us and empower us and entrust us 
and commission us in whatever ways, Father, that we go out sowing in tears, would you help us to come back with joy and rejoicing? In whatever way we are subdued and are languishing, would you help us, even in those stammering few steps of rebuilding and reimagining, would you help us to give thanks in all circumstances and in the ways in which you answer? We praise you for what you have done. We praise you for how you have prepared us for this moment, and we praise you for what awaits us. Help us to rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Love y'all. Peace of the Lord be with you.